Hey guys, welcome to another research review. I originally did the science of metabolic adaptation exactly a year ago. And I want to go through some of those slides because we're going to pick up a kind of a chapter two based on some of the things I was reading in some of my deeper book writing sessions in the last couple of months. Uh, right now, I am I am committed to finishing my nutrition book. This will probably be the last nutrition book I ever write. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish it this winter. Uh, there are four sections. And the first section is on the topic of metabolism. Several chapters in that section, one of them being metabolic adaptation. And the reason this is important is, I guess I probably take it for granted that there are still so many questions and maybe myths and myth misinformation about what happens. Can you prevent it? Should you prevent it? what causes certain levels of, of adaptation. So I, I, I started digging around and every time I think I have all the pieces of the puzzle and, and I can explain them well, you always find somebody who, who did some kind of weird study that showed something new, which is you know certainly useful. But let, let's go back to uh, one that we did last year. And then I'm also going to uh, pull up a couple just from memory through some our series on hormones and through metabolic homeostasis, just to give you a little bit of a fuller picture. But the the study we're going to talk about today, which comes up in a few minutes, uh, is really definitely unique for a couple of reasons. So I, I think it, it is very, very you know helpful that we have this. So metabolic and behavioral compensations in response to caloric restriction implications for the maintenance of weight loss. Um. I used a different template. I have to move these things out of the way a little bit. So daily energy expenditure has three major components, resting metabolic rate, the thermic effect of food, and the energy cost of physical activity. Respiratory chambers enable the measuring of sleeping metabolic rate, the energy cost of arousal, the thermic effect of food, which of course is digestion, and the cost of spontaneous physical activity. Um, I'm not going to go through this entire study, but one of the things that I think you have a good handle on, if you've been with us through some of these research reviews, especially on metabolism, is intentional exercise is the one we can control the most. When you look at resting metabolic rate or basal metabolic rate, that is the largest component of metabolism because in a 24-hour day, sleeping or not, uh, resting or not, just your average collective amount of calories used is going to be similar every day based on your lifestyle, obviously different day to day. Um, but that also includes your genetics. You know, that's that's part of that genetic resting metabolic rate. Then you have non-exercise activity, which is just how many times are you getting up and down from your chair, moving around, walking around through the day. But then intentional exercise can be zero or it can be quite significant. You know, you could get a thousand calorie workout. Um, so that's that's where a lot of things change when we're looking at metabolism, whether it is uh, basal metabolic rates or or not. Um, you know, it's it's going to end up being something where you you're 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 tracking all of these metrics, perhaps maybe maybe not very much. Uh, some people, of course, are tracking steps and all that good stuff. But if you're not, then you could wonder why, you know, weeks are different and your results are different as we go. So just this particular uh, study, as I said, I'm not going to go through every slide because it's a review one we already have. 
But they basically took a control group. So that's the normal group not doing anything. And then they had a, a dieting group where they reduced calories by 25%, which is a very standard research methodology for nutrition research. And then they also, with that same 25% deficit, they had a group where they split it between calorie restriction and then increased exercise. And then they also, just for comparison, threw in a low calorie diet, uh, close to a very low calorie diet, which was under a thousand calories. And the goal was to get about 50% body weight reduction, which is also kind of a gold standard for some research and then maintain, you know, that's, you know, almost an ethical consideration is staying right about there. It was a six month intervention. All the meals were provided, but it was self-reported. And the group that had exercise plus calorie, calorie restriction, they had five sessions per week. Three of those were supervised, uh, probably just for convenience and time, but they at least wanted three of them to be like, hey, we got a trainer here. We know what you're doing. We're standardizing it as much as we can. Then they, they tested their basal metabolic rates, their resting metabolic rates in the beginning at three months and then six months, as well as DEXA scans for lean body mass and so forth. So um, if you look here, so this is the weight change, the control group, uh, actually lost about a pound. Um, so even though they weren't trying, you know, that was just the serendipity of the study across six months, the control, I'm sorry, the, uh, the calorie restricted group plus exercise, that's the next uh, grouping here. That's what they lost at three months and six months, then calorie restriction. So remember they were at 25% calorie deficit through just diet or diet and exercise. So you see here at the end, it just basically the same, identical. Then the low calorie diet, they lost a little bit more. Um, and what I want you to see here, this was kind of the, the, the thrust of this diet. The fat-free mass was higher at uh, this, this particular group. The, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the calorie restriction plus exercise, they retained more lean body mass. So that's one of the premise points of a lot of research when you look at metabolism. Everybody seems to think fat-free mass, lean body mass, that's important. You guys have heard this over and over and over in pop culture, nutrition, uh, podcasting, and so forth, where, you know, hey, muscle is metabolically active tissue. For every pound of muscle, it's burning this many calories per day. So you need that muscle. That's very, very important for the metabolism. I say all that because we're going to get into this uh, with a second study. Uh, I just want to make sure I didn't skip a slide there. Okay, so again, let me let me let me blow through some of this stuff because I don't want to, um, you know, belabor the points we already made and then end up not having time for the new study. So here is what's really interesting. Uh, I showed you that both groups, calorie restriction alone, calorie restriction plus exercise you ended up having the exact same weight loss after six months. The exercise group, of course, preserved a little bit more lean body mass, but they also preserved their actual total daily energy expenditure. So look at this control group. Remember, they lost a pound. So just because they were part of a study, I guess they were on their best behavior. Um, so at three months and then six months, six months, it kind of neutralized. This is another thing I, I'm finding a lot in research. The longer you take a study, three months, six months, and a year, when you start having initial decreases in, in total daily energy expenditure, your, your resting metabolic rate, it seems to have an acute sharp curve 
and then it starts to stabilize. You're going to see that in both of these studies today. So again, at three months, there was a little bit of a you know drop in resting metabolic rate, and then it kind of stabilized. The group that was calorie restricted only, they started out, uh, if I remember right, this was like 371 calories a day. All of a sudden, three months later, they took that much of a metabolic hit. They were burning 371 calories less every single day. Then at six months, it kind of stabilized or, or went back up a little bit. So, you know, almost cut in half. The exercise group, they maintained their, their uh, total daily energy expenditure. So one point that's going to come up later also is that in a lot of studies, even in a calorie deficit, even with substantial weight loss over a substantial amount of time, sometimes there's not a reduction in in metabolic rate. Um, it's it's kind of a constant just by average that there is, and that's what our second study is going to dictate today. But here's here's something to consider because you're going to see an interesting contrast later that if you want to preserve lean body mass in, in that more, and actual, you know, metabolic capacity, you know, exercise, none of you guys need to know that. I'm sure you all love to train. You couldn't live without it. Um, I'm not going to go into these numbers. We already did this one. I want to get to our new one. Okay, so here's the new study for part two. Um, and, and I will bring up another study that we've done in the past, which if you remember the one where we looked at hormones and which hormones are responsible for drops in acute metabolism, you'll remember that in one study with 24 women, uh, there was an acute 6% reduction in resting metabolic rate those women continued to lose an average of 44 pounds. And they did that in three to five months because the goal was to lose a certain amount of weight no matter how long it took. And they they were all checked throughout the study. And to a person, their resting metabolic rates dropped 6%. And that was within the first 10 days, never dropped any lower. And then at the end, uh, at the end of those three to five months, with a resumption of, of bringing their calories back up to maintenance, just over the course of 10 days, their resting metabolic rate was already back up the full 6%. Didn't take three months, didn't take six months of recovering, didn't take a super long gradual stair-stepping. They just ramped them right back up to maintenance levels. Boom, their metabolism was back. Uh, at that case, you would not have to see any rebound body fat gain. I mean, if if they just brought their calories up to a tested maintenance level and continued, so presumably five or so hundred calories a day, they got to eat more. As long as they didn't start exceeding that, then metabolically they were healthy. So this particular study in the International Journal of Obesity uh, just last year uh, looked at tissue losses and metabolic adaptations as they both contribute to the reduction in resting metabolic rate following weight loss. So here's an interesting thing about this study. They took the data with permission from another study, which is kind of cool. We've seen this before, at least once I remember, uh, where some researchers, they have a premise, they have a hypothesis they're trying to investigate. 
and they go through their their study, uh, you know, whatever researchers and grad students they have to do this or institutionally supported all that, the participants, time constraints, you know, they do the study, they analyze it, and and then it's it's peer reviewed. They don't always look at everything. And some people with different skill sets will, especially when it comes to statistical analysis, they will look at those studies and say, hey, why didn't they check this? The data was right there. Why didn't they just run this? Why didn't they compare this? So this group actually took a, a study that was, I believe it was a year-long study, and said, man, there is so much that they left on the table. We want to go back and just do a lot of deeper statistical analysis. Uh, maybe because just with new methodology and so forth, it was it was easier. Um, so here, like I said, is is their premise, which I mentioned earlier. It has been traditionally assumed that resting metabolic rate preservation is enhanced with fat-free mass. Uh, and of course, that that's primarily the determinant of resting metabolic rate. Uh, this present investigation is a secondary analysis of the date from Kalari. Uh, randomized clinical trial in humans that involved 25% reduction in energy intake, as I said, again, kind of standard, uh, over the course of a two-year period. Oh, wow. I thought it was just one year. I think they did just study in, in their secondary analysis. I think they just looked at the first year. Uh, they were chosen. This, this was chosen because it was uh, a long-term weight loss in a free living study. Remember, we often talk about that, something that's very inpatient mechanistic versus more longitudinal and long-term. Uh, and the design enabled examination of variability in the causes of resting metabolic rate reduction, secondary weight loss, as well as changes in body composition and hormonal concentrations. Um, so th there are so many great pros to different kinds of research. And I hesitate to use the word cons because it just, just depends on the type of study. And some studies are better for investigating some things. Uh, I often, when it comes down to nutrition research and even exercise science, will lament that, you know, in a six or eight week study, you can't tell a lot. Uh, maybe again, some acute, you know, mechanisms and so forth. But, um, you know, what's more important to us as a society, I think often is when you have some kind of intervention, what are the long-term effects? You know, what are the long-term effects uh, physiologically, as well as socially, as these person exit a study and then just go back to live their real lives with anything they may have learned? So this was one of those studies. We get we get a picture of of a long term, you know, at least their secondary analysis, one year study. Um, so I need that information. What they ended up doing, I think there were more than two hundred people in the the original study. They whittled it down to one hundred nine because they wanted to make sure they could compare apples to apples. And by that, I mean, they wanted people who were, you know, serious and, and complied and finished the study and that sort of thing. So it's you, you can read this, this study yourself, but it, it was not um, an issue of cherry picking data and so forth. They, they just really wanted to make sure quite the opposite, that they were giving something that was very, very comparable. So 109 participants, 77 women, 32 men, age 20 to 50, BMI, fairly decent, 22 to 23. 12 months of calorie restriction. So they looked at that first year, 25% calorie restriction versus a control group that was not dieting. And then they used DEXA scans to determine tissue losses. One of the things that they did differently than the original study was we, we know through calculation how much impact things, uh, different hormones like T3 have, have an effect on weight loss. 
Um, and so they really went an extra measure to, to, to compare what we could attribute to resting metabolic, you know, change. So in total, remember this is a 25% calorie reduction. So if you normally need 2000 calories a day to just survive and maintain, now you're eating 1500 calories. So by the end of 12 months, the participants had lost about 16 pounds, which, you know, certainly not setting the world on fire, but self-reported studies, obviously they weren't that compliant, right? Because 500 calories a day deficit for 365 days, they would have lost more. Uh, but again, this is in, in the wild study. So that those were the results. That's what we get. So I would say this is very, very slow, moderate weight loss. And therefore, their resting metabolic rate reduction of 100 calories is kind of what you'd expect. That's not a lot. In the study we looked at a minute ago, remember acutely, also with a 25% calorie reduction, but more controlled, they saw a 371 calorie reduction in resting metabolic rate acutely. And then that settled up around 200 calories you know, six months later. So again, this was a much slower weight loss pace, which that has some application. Lose weight a little bit slower. You don't disrupt your metabolism quite as much. Now, here's what becomes interesting. 60% of the total reduction in resting metabolic rate explained by energy expending tissue losses. So it wasn't 100%. It wasn't that you lose uh, muscle, um, you know, and then you lose all your, 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 you know, metabolic capacity. 40% was attributed to metabolic adaptation. Specifically, they say leptin, T3, and insulin because they were the most significant drops that they saw. But I wouldn't call all of those metabolic hormones, and I'll explain that coming up. T3 is what shoulders most of the load when it comes to your actual metabolic strength. So, the, the, the things that they were able to assess that were different and maybe not ever even looked at in other studies was that the total muscle loss was about one kilogram. And they said that was just not significantly related to resting metabolic rate change. Uh, matter of fact, some people in the study gained muscle, uh, probably because just, you know, outside of the study or outside the study design, they decided, hey, I'm losing weight. Let me start exercising a little bit more or something. Maybe just the quality of the food increased enough that that created some, some re-synthesizing um, of lean body mass that they had lost previously. But uh, one of the things right off the bat, and this will be a thread throughout the, their results, is that muscle, remember, primarily through history in nutrition research, everybody seems to give metabolic tissue, which would be, we think of just muscle mass as, as the entire load of what would decrease metabolic need or resting metabolic rate. And they said, statistically, we didn't see it at all, but adipose loss was positively associated with resting metabolic rate. So that, you know, um, 16 or so pounds. Uh, and then I'm going to get into the, the metabolic adaptations and hormones in a minute. But here's something that you may remember from the series we did on fat. And uh, we did it under the series title of inflammation because fat is an organ. Collectively, it is an organ system and there is metabolically active tissue. There's vascularity. There are hormone, um, you know, hormones secreted and so forth in metabolic tissue. The adipose sites where we actually 
store body fats, store fatty acids, you know, that's one component of adipose tissue, but it, it is an organ. It's a, it's, it's cells with cell walls and cellular activity and, and vascularity and so forth. And here's what I think these guys were even surprised to find out. Um, when you lose body fat, when you lose fat cells from those adipocytes, you lose that organ mass, calling fat an organ, and that actually decreases. Because now, think about it, you don't have as much body fat. If you, if you had 60 pounds of body fat and now you have 20, you don't have as much metabolic activity, storing new fat, you know, liberating new fat and so forth. There's just not as dynamic uh, you know, the, the weight mass and the functionality of that body fat as an organ is less. So most of all, matter of fact, they're saying virtually all, you, 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 almost, you almost have to say all of the tissue loss that caused a reduction in resting metabolic rate is from the actual fat mass you lose. So the cost of losing body fat is some of that metabolic activity of constantly storing and releasing body fat. This was very interesting uh, because it also, if you remember in our discussions about metabolism, I like to dispel the notion that we should always want a faster metabolism. Like, oh, I want a raging metabolism, a, a fire. We want to be an engine. You know, all these metaphors we have for your metabolism. The faster your metabolism, the faster you're going to die. The slower your metabolism means you have a slower heart rate. It means you have slower and lesser needs for oxygen, carbon dioxide exchange, cellular metabolic activity down to every one of your tens of trillion cells is slower. That's health. That's better health. A slower metabolism is improved health and longevity. So first of all, the entire premise of wanting a super, super fast metabolism isn't what we should want. We don't want a metabolically suppressed situation we don't want it to be unduly adapting into a, a negative state that we don't need, but it shouldn't be our goal just to chase or think we can even affect, uh, you know, a, a faster metabolism. So again, right off the bat, you know, one, one of their first findings is your loss of body fat mass is what equates to most of the entire 60% because tissue loss is what explains uh, 60% of your resting metabolic rate change. The other 40% is attributed to this metabolic adaptations. So this is what this looks like in graph form. This is, uh, you know, weight change over time. So just follow this, this solid line down here and that's total weight loss. And then this line, this next line up is, is fat mass lost. And then this is lean body mass lost. So, you know, it just shows again, how resilient our metabolism is. Uh, I was very happy in our nutrition coaching global mastermind. I was making a point like this uh, earlier this week. And, and I made that statement that, you know, I'm writing this book, do this chapter, the section on metabolism, blah, 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 blah. And, and collectively with all the research I'm putting in here, I, I'm just shocked at how whatever kind of downward or upward pressure we put on the metabolism it's really, really resilient. And Dr. Eric Helms was just like nodding in the background, like, yes, yes, great point. And, and I love that affirmation because he, of course, is a research fellow who does primarily nutrition research. So, you know, again, I, I hope that's solidifying some things in your mind, but at baseline, again, part of the results, there was no difference between measured and predicted resting metabolic rate. 
uh, measured RMR decreased by, again, about 100 calories from baseline to six months. And as I said earlier, there was no further decline from six to 12 months. There seems to be that preservation effect where here's one way I could explain it outside of that being just survival, so to speak. Um, As you know, in this study with what was supposed to be a 25% reduction in calories, obviously they didn't average that for the full year. So I think because we know diet fatigue sets in pretty heavily, you know, statistically research has shown about five months, people start getting bored and they may not be taking care of scheduling diet breaks and things like that. So it it makes sense that people's natural food intake starts to rise back up a little bit. So that could account for why there is less metabolic, um, you know, resting metabolic rate decline. It kind of stabilizes. Um, I tend to think that's probably the biggest factor that, you know, I don't think mechanistically your body just decides, hey, we, you know, we're going to start raising the metabolism, even though food is the same even though this calorie deficit has been here for this long, you would think it's going to the opposite. So I think because of some of the other factors we're going to see here in a minute, um, we just get a little bit hungrier and the body starts to say, Hey, you know what? We've been, we've been dieting for a while. Let's start to eat a little bit more. So individual changes in measured RMR uh, predicted from changes in organ tissues, metabolic adaptations are shown in figure two, five, the intervention, 83% of participants experienced a reduction in resting metabolic rate. So some of them didn't. Uh, of the participants who experienced a reduction, uh, it was between zero and 100 calories and um, kind of averaged out there because between 100 and 200 calories was about 33%. And then 200 to 300 calories is about 21%. So some people did experience a uh, a larger reduction, I would almost say they probably had better compliance, and that's why. Um, you know, that's very realistic and shown in literature. Um, but again, sixty one percent metabolic adaptations contributed more substantially to the change in resting metabolic rate than tissues and organs. In thirty three percent of participants, experienced positive metabolic adaptations. So how about that? Out of 100% of people, 33% actually show some positive increases, which again, would have to be um, just you know outside of the study design. They had to be making some changes. And in a study like this, that's so statistically driven, uh, at least they did not report a lot of qualitative information. They weren't asking people if they were making these other changes. They were just, again, measuring things uh, in the labs with them having the instructions of what to do. So this is what it looks like on a line graph from the changes in resting metabolic rates. This Every single vertical line here is each one of the participants. So the person here, somebody actually, you know, a couple people declined in resting metabolic rate over 300 calories. And then some people over here were kind of baselined out and some people increased. Um, once again, I really think you have to assume some of these people here were the ones who started something new with their training and probably weren't dieting quite as hard, but I could be wrong. Uh, I'm going to get into some final things here that are our take-home points, and then uh, we'll, we'll jump in with a little conversation. But no discernible difference between changes in resting metabolic rate and muscle loss. They were able to conclude that you we just don't lose hardly any muscle anyway. And so when you see 100, 200, 300 calories, you know, almost in those perfect 33% categories of decrease, 
and yet nobody's really losing any muscle, you can't say that those losses are from muscle. Um, they did do this in quarters uh, since it was a they were looking at 12 months. So they were they were studying things, you know, first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter. And the fact that in the first quarter, the greatest muscle mass was lost, accounting for 26.7% of the RMR reduction. That's, again, I think, showing diet fatigue. Um, but there are other studies that show the same thing, kind of an acute response and then then a little bit of an upward migration. 94.4% um, of the uh, of the RMR drop uh, from tissue lost, 67.4% from other tissue. I think I did that wrong. That's from fat lost. 94.4% was from actual adipose tissue lost. I, I forgot adipose. So here's what's interesting with that particular stat, or I'm sorry, from all tissue lost. I'm sorry, that's right, from all tissue. So 94.4%, 67.7% was from adipose or other tissue, and the rest of, of that was from lean body mass. So that leaves 5.6% of the metabolic adaptation was from the actual, um, you know, hormonal profile, you know, the different collective hormones that they were testing. So this is uh, where I put that nod back to the study of the thyroid uh, research that we looked at, where, you know, 24 women to a participant dropped 6% in thyroid function, regained that 6% at the end. They actually duplicated this almost perfectly. Uh, that is real confirmation of, of research, in my opinion. Uh, so they, they, spent so some time talking about leptin and insulin because of their reductions, but here's why I, I just don't consider them players in metabolism. Maybe secondarily, uh, leptin did drop 60%, but remember leptin is released from body fat cells um, to, to tell the brain to decrease hunger cues. So when you're in a long-term calorie deficit, you're going to have less leptin because your body wants you to feel more hunger. That doesn't change your metabolism, but what's interesting, it is a direct result of fat mass lost. So when you are in a calorie deficit and you're in a catabolic environment, you're, you're going to see decreases in leptin, which are not great because you're gonna feel some hunger. We did a research review a long time ago that even showed that some of that doesn't come back which is why chronic yo-yo dieting does have some negative implications because every time we, we go through significant body fat loss and then regain it and do it again and regain it and do it again, you, you tend to not see a full rebound in leptin. Your body almost starts to say, wow, we are incurring massive amounts of cyclical famines. And so your body wants you cued to always be ready to eat. Uh, but again, it's, that's not, changing metabolism that's indirect result to the reduction in body fat you know same thing with uh body fat or i'm sorry insulin being reduced we know in a calorie deficit you're going to see a reduction in insulin again that's a reaction to just decreased energy storage so again i, I don't see that as as a big metabolic thing but again, they saw, you know, overall in T3 levels through that entire year, an average of a decrease of 14%. And that's that's what does drive that hormone or does drive fat loss, resting metabolic rate. Uh, and then typically you'll see that come back. 
So the, the take-home message is, again, resting metabolic rate. If you're going to lose pretty slowly, I don't think this would stand up for somebody dieting at, at even what I would call a moderate pace. But, you know, you do see that resting metabolic rate reduction. Weight loss of about 11% wasn't bad, um, but, you know, wasn't a fast pace. Again, that 60-40 split of tissue loss versus metabolic adaptation. And, and again, other studies, they even cited several studies since this is kind of a they included a lot of citations as well, but, you know, they said, uh, you know, several other researchers doing different types of research also show that, that resting metabolic rate kind of tops out at six to 10% as a decrease. And so part of why I want to share something like this, because their, their entire goal was to just dispel the myth or at least investigate how much muscle tissue, you know, fat-free mass is related to resting metabolic rate. And it turns out that virtually nothing is related to change in resting metabolic rate. Certainly muscle tissue has a lot to do with metabolism. I mean, our movement, our non-exercise activity, the metabolic energy consumed through muscle tissue use per day, that is dominantly part of our metabolism. It's just that the fluctuation through weight loss isn't what is impacted there. Um, but my 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 primary application for people who I think are interested in this is the fact that you don't have to worry about it. Uh, there was an influencer in our industry, you know, 10 or 15 years ago who started this whole craze, everybody talking about metabolic damage. And to this day, I mean, a week doesn't go by without you know, potential client inquiries coming in. And I'm telling you, 99% of people will always have this story. My metabolism is broken. I did this diet and it broke my metabolism. My metabolism is damaged. And they have all of these stories about why their metabolism is just not working. And that's why they can't lose weight. It's just not, it is just not the case. So would love to hear your questions and comments about that. But in their final conclusion, our analysis demonstrates that resting metabolic rate is inevitably reduced, inevitably reduced after weight loss and healthy normal weights in overweight individuals. Why? Because when you lose fat mass, that is the metabolically active tissue that will decrease its own metabolic needs. And this reduction occurs through a combination of, of loss of energy expanding tissues and metabolic adaptations. As hypothesized, the loss of energy expanding tissues, predominantly skeletal muscle mass and adipose tissue, contributed to the reduction at RMR, uh, although on average for only 60%, leaving the remaining 40% of RMR reduction attributable to metabolic adaptations. More importantly, more importantly, the contribution of tissue losses and metabolic adaptations to overall RMR reduction was highly variable between individuals. Contrary to common belief, there is no discernible relationship between the loss of skeletal muscle, the primary lean tissue component that is lost during weight loss, and reductions in RMR. Conversely, the loss of adipose tissue was related to reductions in RMR and metabolic adaptations, whereby metabolic adaptations were greatest in individuals who lost the most adipose tissue. So that final sentence, when you lose the most body fat, that's when you see the most metabolic adaptation, that, that downward pressure, which is again normal because uh, everything is coming down from T3 to, you know, leptin and insulin and so forth. And on the thyroid side coming down, that's a direct metabolic adapter downward. And then those other hormones being decreased, you know, will, will make hunger a little bit more of an issue. 
So that was a lot to go through, um, you know, reviewing one and going through some more. But what questions do you guys have about the human metabolism? Maybe, Kevin, you can start and just uh, let us know if anything stood out to you. I'd say it's rather logical when you think about it. Um, with those that are aiming to lose weight, if the, you, you're presuming and they're more than likely going to have just more a higher fat, body fat percentage, thus whatever you're losing, that's what's the greater percentage of what is being lost. Therefore, I think it's just logical uh, to make that type of connection versus just you just lose weights and you know just leave it at that but um i don't know that it, i can't say it was surprising but the it is just more validation of just it's not that the risk of the change to metabolism itself is not that severe or dire as as a lot of people thought so that that wasn't surprising to me either because we know that we've we've you know learned a lot of that. But what was I have to say I was not prepared to consider how metabolically active adipose tissue was. Um, and, and again, that, that does that does stand to reason now. Now I can say it's logical that if if I lose a pound of muscle but I also lose forty pounds of body fat. And that body fat is an organ with all of this vascularity and metabolic functionality that, yeah, that's a lot of calorie loss that's just not there. And what a great trade. I'd rather lose 40 mm -hmm. pounds of body fat and have to have to, quote, suffer with having 100 calorie less metabolism per day. Um, but the fact that metabolism is is so well preserved, um, you know, we know lean body mass is well preserved because of exercise if, if you do that appropriately. Um, but I think this, this really starts to put a lot more parameters around the subject. Um, and a lot of this research, like this one coming out just last year, like, I think it's really kind of catching up and compounding. Amy, were you going to say, uh, anything there? Finding the mute button. I don't think I can do it for you over here. Cannot. What is happening in Colorado? She's running to get an IT person. There we go. Hey, had to use the mouse. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it, what I find fascinating about studies that show this, and I think it, it's such an interesting thing now that we are changing the conversation about having like a quote unquote broken metabolism. The, the component of our fat as a function in the body of, of a hormonal function as well. It makes me really want to see how the same studies would look in a morbidly obese population, you know, a population of people that has so much excess adipose tissue because clearly there is something that is not just metabolism that's happening in these people that are able to maintain this amount of weight 
for extended mm-hmm. periods of time, you know, not just gain it, but then also maintain it. Because as you said, fat is extremely metabolically active. Like it takes a lot of energy. And I've always said this, like to maintain that amount of fat on your body, there has to be something that is truly, again, not metabolism necessarily related, but functionally related in the body that is allowing the body to sustain that over extended periods of time, you know, because it has such a metabolic impact on the body, you would think it from an evolutionary standpoint that this would be ridiculous that a body would ever even develop this capability to do that you don't see this in the wild there's no morbidly obese bear you know their 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 body or their their chemical makeup their hormonal makeup everything is able to always balance that out you know it's just the same way you don't see uh, obese animals it would seem that the human body would stop this and i think there's a component of highly processed highly palatable foods that come into play but finding the stop to stop blaming the metabolism and start looking beyond it to see what other causes there are of weight maintenance and weight loss and gain and all of that is going to be, I think, a truly fascinating thing that we start to see more of. So in my adult life, I have weighed for extended period of times, anywhere from 150 pounds to 200. And that was kind of a peak. Like I was really working hard to get there. I really was probably about 190. In my, I mean, there's about a thousand calorie difference in the amount of food I have to eat to maintain that higher end for the reason you just said, there's, there's more metabolic demand, my heart, lungs, muscular system carrying around more body weight. Um, but a couple of weeks ago, we did a research review in our series on metabolic homeostasis and talked about the genetics of obesity and in that the polygenic and monogenic differences, there there is about 1% of the population that has a monogenic mutation. And, and, and all it takes is one single chromosomal mutation. And those are the people who can weigh 600 pounds, 800 pounds, 1,000 pounds. Those are the people who, when they are babies, like they look like little 50-pound bags of flour. And, and that is that is a genetic mutation. And about, I would say almost the rest of us, maybe maybe two thirds of the rest of us have have different, they, they've isolated over a thousand genetic patterns for, for polygenic obesity, meaning, as you said, Amy, in the presence of all this highly palatable processed food that we just can't stop consuming because our bodies want that storage for scarcity, you know, fears and reasons, um, like we, we, we can eat, we can get overweight, but left to our own devices, it kind of taps out at a certain level and then can't even start to reduce just because you just get tired of eating that much. You know, at some point, the psychology of it, you know, is, is a factor and you're just, you just can't maintain that level of eating. And, and like you said, you do drift back down, but just having those, those polygenic capacities for body fat storage, kind of like the bear example, they, they can gain a lot of weight for hibernation, but then it naturally comes back off, you know, when it's, when it's that cycle in their physiology. So, yeah, I mean, a lot goes into this, uh, but again, I'm, I'm with you and the fact that, you know, there's, there's what we can't control with that, those horrible genetic mutations. There's the normal genetics for our ability to sustain famine in long periods of time. And so we want to be able to store energy and then they're, you know, I guess in today's viewpoint, you would call them the lucky people who, you know, have faster metabolism and so forth. They, they typically just also aren't very hungry. You know, when you see those ectomorphs who we think they can eat anything, overall calorie intake is usually not that high. 
because they may eat a lot at one meal and then they there's not hungry. But yeah, really, really, really good points. Any other thoughts or question? Uh, it looks like Becky is uh, has her video on. I don't know if you're going to jump in here, Becky. Certainly feel free if you have any thoughts. Um, Kevin, when you think about the uh, just, just the the story of metabolism, uh, besides adaptation and just the the human boundaries of it, is there anything that you think is is worth telling people when you're talking to a client or a patient? Are you finding yourself wanting to teach something? Probably one of the first things we talk about will be the misconception about faster metabolism, as you mentioned, you know, just the idea of an understanding that it's about efficiency more so than just a rate. And then having the expectation as you will inevitably lose weight, you just are more efficient. Therefore, you will have, you don't need as much, you don't need as much to, to move, to perform, et cetera. Um, you know, to me, it's very applicable and tangible for Gen Pop to understand because, you know, while most of my clients are not going to know of broken metabolism, but they they will still think, well, what is my problem? I have it. I just need a fast metabolism when, you know, they're just from a technicality, they're misunderstanding what they truly want. But, you know, um, it, that's, you know, kind of a, introductory thing but the bigger picture of just understanding metabolic adaptation and especially in the context of maintenance and or as a as an anticipatory teaching moment of when getting into maintenance that this shit is going to likely it will occur you're going to have these physiological things be initiated as a result of weight loss you need to we you know need to understand it because then we can prepare for it that you know hunger cues are going to change or they're going to in a way rebound as you switch into maintenance or as you approach a set point for yourself and it's to understand that these are physiological evolutionary protectors rather than just oh I'm a piece of shit or something of that nature of just blame and shame. Um it's to understand that this is very real what's going on we can anticipate it we can help it but it certainly is a big barrier for maintenance however and sometimes a lifelong one yeah to to that point about teaching general population clients and patients uh yeah i think of two things that are really folks in their their final line of their conclusions which is that this is highly variable they showed some of those participants out of 109 people that at the end of six months, even with weight loss, their metabolic strength was higher. Average was 100 down. The most was about 300. So that's a 400 calorie swing in you know 100 different people over a year. And with the average in their conclusion was you just have to expect some metabolic loss. That's what I like to get across to people because we tend to think when I get leaner and healthier, I can eat more. And the fact that you're like, you're not going to be hungrier for more and quantitatively, you just need less. And that is a good thing. You know, don't, don't think about that volume. Like, man, when I was 300 pounds, I could eat eight pieces of pizza. 
now I start gaining weight if I eat three. Well, yeah, that's, you know, that's the cost of being leaner. You, you, you want to trade that body fat for that slight reduction, very predictable and protective reduction in your metabolism. But the other, the other, the final point is about that variability. This is one point I had to make in my book that I'm writing because I want people to know how different it can be from person to person and how to even apply research like this. In that study that showed 6% drops in thyroid, and then at the end of five months, 6% increase, everything was fine, everybody recovered perfectly. Those women were postmenopausal, morbidly obese. Their goal in the research was to get them under 25 BMI and then stop them, stop their journeys as participants. 25 is still kind of heavy. So if you are somebody dieting to 5% body fat or 10% body fat, and maybe you dieted for a year instead of 45 pounds, maybe you lost 100, you probably will see a greater reduction in some of these metabolic adaptations that were in the study. And maybe it does take a little bit longer to recover. And maybe you do see a greater total resting metabolic rate change because your body mass is so different now. So don't get hung up on research like this being just perfectly precise. It's precise on those continuums with those, those individual demographic points. So, you know, the trends are there. They're very scientifically reproducible um, and more and more known precisely now. Uh, but, you know, again, it's, you know, that is the cost. You will always have some metabolic degradation, which is actually a good thing. If we can get people to understand that. All right, guys. Well, thank you for being here.